brief word of prayer and then we'll think about this passage together. Father, we pray now that you'd help us to focus our minds. Lord, a list of names can seem daunting. It might make us want to switch off. But I pray, Father, this morning, you would fill us with your spirit. You would speak to our hearts. Show us something more of Jesus. Uh, Her journey would take her down through uh, the history archives. Uh, it, It would take her down a journey that would reveal who had gone before us in the Bass family tree. Now, it took patience, it took hard work, but eventually we had a completed family tree and we could see for generations upon generations all that had gone before us. And, and it really it, it helped, I guess, me and, and it helped all of us see where we fitted into the bigger picture of our family. And it's quite interesting, really, as you, as you look down through the, through the names, and uh, a name can tell you quite a lot of things, particularly as you start to research who those people were, what they did, what their lifestyles were like. You know, we came across some good people that we could be perhaps proud of in our history. But we also came across some people that we thought, mm, I'm not really sure if I want them in my family. You know, some, some hidden things that had gone on, would proud of, that would give me a good name and a good reputation, or would I be lo- looking for, for others? Making it a bit more spiritual. As we think about the Christian life and the Christian family, who would you choose to belong to Jesus' family? Who would you choose, if you had that choice, to be part of the following that Jesus has? Maybe the answer to that question is actually defined in who we are then willing to go and share the gospel with. Sometimes it's easy, isn't it? Maybe not intentionally, but it's easy to be selective about who we share the gospel with because we somehow make our own assessments on who people are. We might see somebody in the street and we think, well, can God really save them? Do, do they really belong in God's family? You hear of somebody on the news who has committed a horrendous crime and you think, well, is there a place for them in Jesus' family? Maybe we become a bit pharisaical in how we view those who can be accepted into God's family. Or perhaps we stop looking at other people and we say, well, actually, I like the idea of Christianity, but but quite frankly, I'm just too bad. My lifestyle doesn't fit. I look at all these Christians that go into into church every week and, and I am nothing like them. Perhaps you are a Christian. And at this moment in time, you're just not sure whether you truly are. You see the depths of your heart. And you ask the question, how could God ever love a wretched sinner like me? How could God ever use somebody like me? Maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe I'm not really a Christian. That's why Matthew 1, 1 1-17 is vitally important. That is why it is so crucial that we don't just gloss over verses 1-17 to and go straight to the Christmas story at verse 18. 
Maybe this morning, as we read that passage, you were wondering what on earth we're going to be in for this morning. A list of names. What, possibly could, what, what could we possibly learn from a list of long names like this? Maybe you want to switch off. Maybe you already have switched off. If you have switched off, I invite you to come back. Because you're in good company. Because I don't like lists. When I read some of the Old Testament, I scan read lists. Or I miss them out altogether. They can be a bit boring. But the thing is, if we were just to jump to verse 18 of Matthew 1, we miss a vitally important part. Because verse 18 does not happen without verses 1 to 17. And so this morning, I want to take a step back from that familiar Christmas story. And I want us to look in at least summary form at this family tree. It is an incredibly special family tree, and there is so much we can learn from it. And specifically, I want to focus in on something that really should stand out to us. It certainly would stand out to a Jewish person that was reading this. And that is the mention of five women. And see what we can learn from this family tree. But before we get there, let me, let me pose this question to you. Who is Jesus to you? How well do you know Jesus in your life? Maybe you say, well, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for many years. I know Jesus incredibly well. The truth is, we cannot hope to know Jesus to the full extent without at least attempting to understand and read Matthew 1, 1 to 17. I don't know about you, maybe you've wondered why Mark, Luke and John start with immediate action. Uh, particularly with John, he starts with this wonderfully poetic beginning in the word of the you know, a wonderful poetic beginning to his gospel. And then you look at Matthew and you think, well, why has he started like this? Why has he just started with 17 or 16 verses of names? It's because Matthew's seeking to answer that big question. Who is Jesus? Where has Jesus come from? You see, the virgin birth that we see there in Matthew 1.18 and following, it was a unique event. It was an event that would never be repeated. But it's also important for us to realize that Jesus didn't just pop up from nowhere. You can trace Jesus' family line right the way back in this family tree. And so I want, to be, I want to begin as we, before we get to that, I want to begin by almost giving us some context into this, helping us to understand what Matthew is trying to achieve as he gives us this family tree. And then by way of application, then looking at these five women and trying to understand what that means for us. The first thing to note that Matthew is trying to communicate is from those first few verses, from verse 2 through to verse 6. God's promise to the world. That's the first thing that Matthew wants us to see from this family tree. You see, Matthew begins his gospel in the same way that he ends it. He begins by reminding us of Abraham and the promise made to Abraham. What was that promise way back in Genesis 12? That through Abraham, 
all peoples on earth would be blessed. And then later on in Genesis chapter 2, he, this, this, this promise gets enlarged and, it, and it's reminded that through his offspring, all nations will be blessed. That is the promise given to Abraham. That is the promise, therefore, given to the entire world. And how does Matthew end? Matthew 28. Go into the world, all nations. See, this was not a promise that excluded the Jews. Rather, this was a a promise that extended beyond the Jews. A promise of blessing to Gentiles as well. And Matthew wants us to see that. Matthew wants us to understand that in God's big plan and purposes, what all that looks like. Right from the very beginning, the promised hope of the coming Messiah was that the blessing would go out into all nations. Not just Jewish outsiders that would be welcomed in, but all outsiders. All those who are deemed to be unclean. You see the point that Matthew is trying to make as we look at this list? Those who are excluded in Jesus' family become included. So that's the first thing Matthew wants us to see. But the second thing is there in verse 6b through to verse 11, God's grace to Israel. Matthew moves from Abraham to the next big marker, which is David. You know, David was God's chosen king. We've been thinking about him recently as we're going through the book of Samuel. What is the promise made to David? Well, his, his kingdom would continue. His throne would be established forever. Yet what becomes of David? He sins. He commits adultery. Adultery that leads to murder. All of these individuals were sinners. None of them were perfect. But some were outstanding sinners, if we can use that phrase. And here from David to the exile, we just see really this rogues gallery of kings. Some of them were good, but quite a few were bad. And yet they find themselves in the family line of Jesus. But you see, it's not just their individual sins that stand out to us. It's the collective sins of the whole nation. And right here from David through to to verse 11, we end up in exile. That is God's dealings with his people who turn their back on him. Nobody occupying the throne of Israel. The exile means all hope is lost, doesn't it? David's throne was promised to continue. But there's nobody on the throne now. What a truly hopeless situation. Yet whilst we might say that, there is one fundamental thing that we need to be reminded of. That this list of names might seem hopeless. We might wonder why these people. But what it points us to is the wonderful triumph of God's grace. The Messiah has come. We see that in verse 16. God has kept his promises that started way back with Abraham. But here's the point. God has kept his promises. 
not because of Israel's righteousness. There was nothing good about Israel. But God has kept his promises to his people in spite of their sin. I don't know about you, but as you look down some of those names, maybe some of them you don't really recognize, but maybe some of them you do. And maybe you're amazed at the names that you see. And that might be a true reaction, but really we should marvel. We should marvel at the people. We should marvel at the circumstances by which God can and does work to fulfill his plans and purposes. See, God's dealings with people, God's dealings with his people, the promises that were made to his people, it is always, always a work of grace. It can be nothing else. You see, God's chosen nation, Israel, they had nothing to be proud of. As they thought about their circumstances, as they reflected on their history, there was nothing in and of themselves, in their own abilities and strength, that they could boast about in any way, shape or form. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. That was what Abraham's promise was. By your offspring you will be a light to the world. Yet instead of being a light to the world, what had happened, they'd become more like the world. And they suffer the consequences of their rebellion as they enter into that exile. But here's the astounding thing. Even Israel's sin could not stop God's plan and purposes from being fulfilled. Our sin, though we don't excuse it, will not stop God's plans and purposes. The Messiah had come to deliver Israel from the captivity that was brought about by their sin. The third thing we need to, <clears throat> to note before we look at these specific names is there in verses 12 to 16 God's power to bring his purposes to completion this final section of the family line of Jesus Matthew takes us through that period of time when, when Israel had no king they're taken out of exile they return to their homeland it is a difficult time in the history of Israel a time when prophets warned of what would come. A time when enemies were seemingly surrounding them from every angle. Habakkuk himself cries out, How long, O Lord? Many people ask the question, well, 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 When will this promise be fulfilled? When will all these things work out? When will the promised king come? Where will all this end? Maybe they even thought, Well, has God forgotten about us? I don't know if you, as you look down that list from verse 12 through to verse 16, I wonder how many of those names you actually recognize. I recognize some, but some are very unknown people. Very unfamiliar names. And yet they find themselves in the family line of Jesus. You see, much time passes. The final word from the final prophet is spoken. And the blank page that is represented between Malachi and Matthew represents about 400 years of nothing. A silence 
of darkness. And then just at the right time, when perhaps people had given up, perhaps people had stopped looking for the coming of the Messiah. Verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. Throughout this time, God never stopped working. We see a list of unlikely people in unlikely circumstances. Silence, apparent inactivity, many questions. And yet God's purposes continued. God continued to work and fulfill his purposes. And that is why Matthew 1 to 17, Matthew 1, 1 to 17, is more than just a list of names. It's more than just a list of names that we can gloss over and forget about. It speaks of God's promise to the world. It speaks of God's promises to his chosen people, Israel. And it reminds us of his almighty power, even in the most unlikely people and the most unlikely circumstances, to fulfill his purposes and to complete his plans. Contained within this family line of Jesus is nothing more than a list of sinful people, unlikely people, outsiders, None of these people, that's why it was so fascinating to, to listen to the, the account of, of Rahab and, and Ruth way back then in the Old Testament. None of these people would, could have ever understood the big picture of God's plan. None of these people would have understood that generation after generation after generation, one day Jesus would come from their family line. Isn't it amazing who God uses to fulfill his purposes? I wonder, from the, list of, from, the, from the names that you recognize in that list, would you have chosen those people? Would you have wanted those people in your family line? Would you have thought those people would have been in Jesus' family line? From Abraham to David, through the exile... God's plans never failed. And so that just helps us set into context what Matthew is trying to achieve by this family line. But as I mentioned, this is a very specific list. And where there is that specificness, where people have been missed out and certain names chosen, we need to think about why those names have been chosen. And particularly, why there are the mention of five women. Well, four women and one who is unnamed. There are two things that we need to understand as we read those names of those five women. Firstly, that Matthew, a Jew, would choose to name women in a family tree at all. That's the first thing that stands out. For the Jewish reader, as they read that list and as they read the names of those women, that would have made their ears stand up. Jewish family trees, they loved their family trees. Jewish family trees were male-dominated. In the mindset and the culture of the day, women had no place. And yet, Matthew includes them in Jesus' family line. 
In Jesus' family line, women do have a place. And that is why Matthew mentions them. You know, every day a Jewish man would thank God for two things. That he was not born a woman and he was not born a Gentile. And so the fact that Matthew includes them should make us ponder and think, why has he chosen to include these women? Not just any women. Why has Matthew chosen these women? Just look at who he mentions. Verse 3. Tamar. I don't know if you know much about Tamar. You can read about her in Genesis 38. If I was to use one word to summarize Tamar, it would be the word messy. She was the wife of Judah's son. She was probably a Canaanite woman. And the twins that she gave birth to that Matthew mentioned there, Perez and Zerah, were as a direct result of her seduction of Judah. She did it because she was mistreated. But in essence, she committed one wrong to correct another. It was a scheme of deception. She played and acted the part of a prostitute. Would you choose Tamar? I'm not sure I would. Especially in the family line of Jesus. What about Rahab? There in verse 5. We've heard a little bit about her story. What's the one word we could use for Rahab? She was tainted. She was a Canaanite. And her very lifestyle was marred by that of a prostitution. That was who she was. That's how she's defined. And she would be counted amongst all those that Joshua and his men would have been told to utterly destroy as they went into that city. I mean, she doesn't seem our likely choice, does she? Can God use someone like that to fulfill his purposes? Yet according to Hebrews 11.31, she became a believer. She became a woman of faith. And the remarkable thing is, the one who lived a life of prostitution is transformed by the grace of God. She's transformed into a godly woman who marries Salmon, who fathered Boaz, who married Ruth. Who is Ruth? Well, she's the outsider. She's the Moabitess. She's the one that's outside of God's chosen people. She's a stranger in a foreign land. Does that mean that God includes and uses outsiders to fulfill his plans and purposes? What about Bathsheba? She's not mentioned by name. She's mentioned in verse 6b as Uriah's wife. Well, she's a bit of a disgrace, really, isn't she? You know the story of Bathsheba? She's mentioned by reference to her husband who was murdered as a direct result of her adultery with David. She lived in the consequences of that sin. Her first child died. Her second child was Solomon. What about Mary? Well, she was a nobody. Fairly insignificant in her day. Probably not known to many people. 
And yet God looked favorably upon her. And she conceived within her the promised Messiah, Jesus, the Savior. Why would Matthew choose to name not just women, but these women in Jesus' family line? Isn't it remarkable for all the things that I've just said? These women are not remembered for their lifestyle, for their circumstances. These women are remembered for their faith. These women are remembered for their place within God's plans and purposes. As they find themselves in the family line of Jesus. The wonderful testimony of grace that we see here, especially in these women, is that the messy, the tainted, the outsider, the nobodies, the disgraced, find themselves in the family line of Jesus. They find themselves within God's perfect plan and purposes that he is working out even though they are un- it is unknown to them what is going on. Why does Matthew do this? Why this list? Why this people? Because Matthew is getting us ready to be introduced to the one who would be known as the friend of sinners. Jesus said, didn't he, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here is the message of these names. God's purposes are fulfilled in ways that we could never imagine. God's plans are fulfilled in circumstances and events that we would never choose. And here's the big thing. God uses people that we would probably never use. It should cause us, shouldn't it, to reflect on our view of the gospel. It should cause us to reflect on who we think the gospel is for. Who did Jesus come for? It should cause us to reflect on who, therefore, we share the gospel with and perhaps remind us of who, whether intentional or otherwise, we withhold the gospel from. We can say a lot of things about this family tree. We could spend ages going through these names. We're not. But we can say, what a mess. What an unlikely lot. And yet at the same time, we say, what a triumph of God's grace. And if this is who Jesus has in his family line, if, this, if these are the people by which Jesus has come into the world, then we should not be surprised that these are the type of people that Jesus has as his followers. You know, if you're a Christian here this morning, you are part of Jesus' family. You are a testimony of the wonderful triumph of grace that he has accomplished in your life through Jesus. That should encourage us. That should give us a new perspective. That song we sometimes sing sums it all up, doesn't it? Oh, perfect redemption. The purchase of blood. To every believer, the promise of God. The vilest offender 
who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. That's the truth, isn't it? That's the message of the gospel. That's what Matthew 1, 1 to 17 shows us. Because this list of people includes people that I would never have chosen. It contains a list of people that had experiences that I would not want to have myself. But doesn't that sum up the Christian life? Doesn't it sum up the family of Jesus? We are all a mixed bag of people, aren't we? If we think about the church here at Holbrooks, as we think about the church global, universal, whatever you want to, however you want to call it, it contains people that we wouldn't choose. I mean, don't look around now, but if you were to look around this building, if you were to think about all the people that belong to this church, perhaps you say, well, if it wasn't for the fact that I was a Christian, if it wasn't for the fact that I've been welcomed into Jesus' family, I probably wouldn't know half of these people. I certainly wouldn't spend time with some of these people. And as we look around, we realize that it contains people that have had various experiences, some terrible, some good, some experiences that perhaps you wouldn't want to have. Here we should be encouraged, shouldn't we, as we read this list, as we look around, as we think about God's plans and purposes. We should be thankful to God the wonderful testimony of grace that is found in every single believer. Whether we like it or not, whether we like to think about this or not, we are all messy people. We at once were outsiders, we once were lost, but now we're found. And we've been brought together as that unlikely lot, as that messy lot, to be used in God's plans and purposes. And he will accomplish his purposes through very unlikely people like you and me. I want to leave you with just two things. Two things to really contemplate. I'm not going to say much about them, but two things that would do us well to reflect upon as we leave here and as we spend some time maybe this afternoon. Two things that this list reminds us. God's dealings are with real people who have real experiences. They are not with ideal people. God doesn't deal with ideal people. He deals with real people. And sometimes we get it all wrong because we think that we have to be somebody for God to use us. We have to be that ideal person. And yet this list reminds us not... None of us are ideal. You're not ideal. I'm not ideal. But I am real. And I do have real experiences. And God uses real people with real experiences. Secondly, God uses all the messy stuff that we see in Matthew 1, 1 to 17 to accomplish his purposes and to keep his promises to his people, which leads us to the birth of Jesus. And that should also encourage you. Because just like this list of names, we are not neat, tidy, clean people. And God uses all the messy stuff in our lives, in our circumstances, and in this world. He doesn't use us because we're good. But he uses us in spite of the fact that we are sinners saved by grace. Jesus welcomes sinners. He welcomes the marginalized. He welcomes the forgotten. 
Maybe you feel like that this morning. Maybe you feel like the outcast. Maybe you feel like you're a nobody. Maybe you feel like you're excluded. Jesus includes the excluded. And the gospel is not for those who have it all sorted. The gospel is for messy people like you and me, who are far from ideal. And yet God uses real people with real experiences. That is his way. It's a mystery, but it's the truth. And therefore, whoever you are this morning, however you feel about yourself, whatever circumstances you're facing, however sinful you feel, if you belong to Jesus, if you are part of his family, then you are useful to him and he will use you. If you believe him and if you know him as saviour, then this morning there is a place for you in his family. Even if you don't feel like you should belong there. Matthew 1, 1 to 17 reminds us, for all that would turn to Jesus, there is a place. There is a place for you. Father, we're reminded this morning of who we really are. We are humbled by these list of names. I wouldn't, I wouldn't choose these names. Quite frankly, I probably wouldn't even choose myself. We wouldn't choose ourselves. And yet somewhere in the mystery of your will, you choose to use people who are messed up, who are disgraced, who are tainted, who are outsiders, who are nobodies. Forgive us, Lord, for when we feel like we need to be somebody, help us to remember that you use real people with real experiences to carry out and fulfill your plans and purposes. Help us to be encouraged by that this morning. You don't use us because there's anything good within us, but because Jesus lives within us. So continue with us this day, we pray. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, on a Tuesday afternoon, the ladies always finish with the same song. And really it fits very well with what we've just thought about. Our only response to this as we've thought about those that belong to Jesus' family and the wonderful testimony of grace that is found within it, all of us as believers, our only response can be, thank you, Jesus. So let's join with the musicians as we sing.